X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, June 8th. Today, back in the day, on June 8th, 1906, Teddy Roosevelt signed the Antiquities Act into law. In the early 20th century, archaeologists became concerned with the preservation of prehistoric Native American artifacts and ruins. So-called pot hunters would sack federal land sites and remove artifacts to sell to private collectors. So Roosevelt passed the Antiquities Act, which allows the president to set aside historic and natural landmarks as protected land. This prevents private extractive practices like drilling, mining, logging, or grazing. In 2017, Donald Trump signed an executive order threatening all national parks dedicated after 1996. He also greatly reduced the size of two national parks in Utah. Federal courts are still debating the legality of these actions. And today, back in the day on June 8, 1918, an observatory team witnessed a total solar eclipse in Baker City, Oregon. The path of the eclipse arced across the south of Japan, the Pacific Ocean, the continental U.S., and Bermuda. The Oregon observation team made preparations up to a year in advance of the eclipse. John C. Hammond led the team, which included eclipse expert Samuel Alfred Mitchell and artist Howard Russell Butler. Butler's role was crucial to the team as there was no way to reliably capture a photograph of the eclipse in color at the time. They observed the eclipse for a total of 112.1 seconds, during which time he took detailed notes. In classic Oregon fashion, clouds covered the sun for part of the most important observations, but they eventually cleared. The purpose of the team was to gather evidence of Einstein's theory of relativity, but they couldn't collect enough evidence. The team finally got what they needed after a solar eclipse the next year in 1919. And today, back in the day on June 8, 1949, George Orwell's 1984 was published. Orwell's cautionary dystopia portrays the dangers of a world divided into crushing authoritarian superpowers. After three years of writing, he submitted the novel to a publisher with an original title of The Last Man in Europe. The book has been banned or legally challenged in a number of countries, but remains one of the most influential novels of all time. The book introduced concepts like newspeak, doublethink, and thought crime that are still used to describe political life today. For today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with author Stuart Schrader on his recent New Republic article, The Lies Cops Tell Us and the Lies We Tell About Cops. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. A special legislative committee will decide Representative Mike Neerman's fate. After new evidence came to light, Oregon House Republicans have broken their silence on Representative Mike Neerman. A newly surfaced video of Neerman from December 18th shows him coaching supporters on how to break into the closed Capitol building. He called the plan Operation Hall Pass. In that video, Neerman says, quote, If you say, I'm at the west entrance, 
during the session and text that number there. Somebody might exit that door while you're standing there. Later that month, Nearman clearly left a Capitol door open, allowing anti-lockdown protesters to rush into the building. Once inside, the armed protesters faced off against security and police while some others attacked journalists on the scene. Democrats were quick to condemn Nearman. House Speaker Tina Kotek and House Majority Leader Barbara Smith Warner have called for his resignation. But for the last few months, Republicans stayed silent on the issue. All that changed on Monday when House Minority Speaker Christine Drazen also called for Nearman's resignation. Since the incident, Nearman has been stripped of his committee assignments and charged with two misdemeanors. Now a special committee will decide whether or not to expel him from the legislature. The committee will be made up of three Democrats and three Republicans. And this new condemnation from Republican leadership means that Nearman could be in real trouble. Nearman would be the first Oregon lawmaker to be expelled from the legislature. And now your daily dose of data. As of Monday, Multnomah County is 69.4% vaccinated. Right now, two Oregon counties, Washington and Benton, have surpassed 70% vaccination. Three more counties have submitted COVID equity plans to the OHA. Clackamas Lane and Tillamook counties have all submitted plans to ensure racial equality in vaccine distribution. Once those counties vaccinate 65% of their residents, they will be able to move to the low-risk category and decrease some COVID restrictions. Some Blazers news. Just one day after the Blazers lost in the first round of the playoffs, the team dropped head coach Terry Stotts. The departure of Stotts seemed inevitable after a season of rumors that he would leave if the team didn't advance in the playoffs. Now with two years still on his contract, Stotts and the Blazers have chosen to part ways. Terry Stotts was head coach of the Blazers for nine seasons. In that time, he coached the team to eight playoffs, although the team was never able to bring home a trophy. Possible replacements include the Clippers assistant coach Chauncey Billups, Nets assistant coach Mike D'Antoni, and Michigan's current head coach Jawan Howard. On Saturday, Terry Stotts released a letter thanking the players, team management, and Portland fans for a rewarding time with the team. Hillsboro is opening its first-ever managed camping area for the homeless. Starting mid-June, it will be a space for 30 members of Hillsboro's unhoused community to camp safely. The area will have portable restrooms, hand-washing stations, tents, platforms, and sleeping bags. Organizers also hope to provide on-site mental health and addiction services. Although the project is sponsored by the City of Hillsborough, it will be run by the nonprofit Project Homeless Connect. Hillsborough chose the camp's location with at least some business interests in mind. The camp is relatively distant from local businesses, which have been complaining about growing tent cities. Still, there has been some opposition to the project from local property owners. This project also raises questions about the over-policing of unhoused people. The campground is near Hillsborough's police training facility, and city councilors say that police will patrol the area. The director of Project Homeless Connect confirmed that the nonprofit will be collaborating with police to crack down on trash, drug use, and violence. What that will actually look like is unclear, 
although it seems likely that camp residents will be the subjects of increased police scrutiny. The camp will stay open for six months until winter shelter becomes available. Firefighters are all still battling the Joseph Canyon blaze. The fire ignited last weekend on public lands. As of Monday, it has scorched over 4,000 acres. Around 200 firefighters are suppressing the blaze along the Oregon-Washington border. Containment is slow going, but thankfully the fire is not spreading quickly. In a press release, Matt Howard, the deputy administrator of the Oregon Department of Forestry, said, quote, this is probably one of the most difficult places to fight fire in Oregon. A handful of ranchers had to move cattle out of the fire zone, although the fire is not currently threatening any people or homes. And finally, some good news. The Morrison Bridge was bathed in purple light yesterday in honor of Prince's birthday. He may not have been a Portlander, but Prince's flamboyant insistence on always staying true to himself is a Portland attitude through and through. In a press release, Willamette Light Brigade Executive Director Alicia Sullivan said, quote, The Purple One was an uncompromising, unconventional artist with a permanent legacy. It's only natural that Portlanders have a particular fondness for him. So yesterday, in honor of the late pop star's June 7th birthday, the Morrison Bridge lit up in Prince's signature purple color. The Morrison Bridge lights returned in May after more than two years. The time off was for an equipment upgrade, and now the lights are back brighter than ever. Up next, the bridge will be lit up in rainbows from June 13th to the 20th to celebrate Portland LGBTQ Pride. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up is author and lecturer in sociology at Johns Hopkins University, Stuart Schrader. Stuart is here to talk about his recent New Republic article, The Lies Cops Tell and the Lies We Tell About Cops. First, I want to talk about context. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what the Pew Research Center found about police PR, which I think goes back to that first press release about what happened to George Floyd and and um, how police PR uh, departments are set up and, and what they do. How, how do they approach PR that's different maybe from, you know, any other group? Yeah, absolutely. This was really interesting for me to learn in my research, which is that um, police actually in recent years have been making the argument that they are disliked or hated. Most times we would think of PR as uh, people trying to say, we're well-liked, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're popular. But in fact, um, police oftentimes, and particularly police unions, have been making the claim that they are deeply unpopular and, and, and even hated. And I think that part of what's going on here is an effort to try to paint critics of um, police injustice, police malpractice, um, so, you know, social uh, 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 repression of social movements and so forth. They're trying to, to paint those critics as, as unreasonable, as irrational, as even you know, tantamount to being themselves you know, criminal actors. Um, making these these really bold and, and over the top claims about about being hated um, is is meant to paint the critics 
as, as unreasonable. And so what the Pew Research Center has found is that even in 2020, during this uh, period of, of massive you know, political upheaval and, and, and uprisings and protests and demonstrations, police actually remained surprisingly popular among the American public. Now, of course, there were differences um, across uh, racial and ethnic groups in the popularity of police, but it was it was nevertheless the case that um, more than half of the Americans polled had favorable views of police. So, so it doesn't, you know, again, going on just these these very basic, uh, you know, empirical findings by a, a you know well-regarded research firm. It just does not follow that police are nearly as unpopular as they, um, you know, paint themselves to be. And, and, and when I say unpopular, I really mean that, that they're trying to say that they are um, under under threat, that they're, um, you know, in, in at grave risk at all times. And the consequences of that are the ways that police act on on patrol on the streets. You know, this they they inculcate in, in their training and in their culture this this belief that they are that they're hated and therefore under threat and that leads to really aggressive um, fear-based responses to um, incidents that 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 very often don't warrant those types of responses Wow uh, I'm Christine Alexander our guest is Stuart Schrader we're talking about his uh, recent article in the New Republic. Well, speaking of, of those things that seem sort of overblown, like how much people hate the cops, which is not necessarily so, the other thing is that it's it's the most dangerous job that you can have. But you point out in the article that it's not as dangerous as sanitation, being a sanitation worker or a landscaper. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, police officer ranked something like 16th uh, of the mo- of the 30 most dangerous jobs, and 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 then when when we look, of course, the the data on po- police deaths in in the line of duty, which is a kind of official term that is used. Um, I, I think the the common notion that many people have is that the the majority of line of death duties are you know due to gunfire, um, but in fact that is not actually true. And in 2020, um, the majority were due to COVID, and um, almost the same number died due to gunfire as died due to traffic crashes. Now, of course, uh, I, I think. You know, most most people would argue that um, if the risk of death from traffic crashes and the risk of death from gunfire are about equal, um, protection protection should be in place. You know, to protect officers from from both of those those dangers. But of course, the the emphasis is on uh, the gunfire rather than traffic crashes, and and so we often find that that officers um, die because they're not wearing their seatbelts. And the reason that many officers choose not to wear a seatbelt, despite perhaps departmental regulations, is that they are afraid that they will be shot um, if they can't get out of their car quickly enough due to, you know, in, in, a, in an emergency crisis incident, you know, due to wearing the seatbelt. So it actually is, um, the, the risk of gunfire is, is, is not that strong. 
um, and but it, it, it creates the risk of, of getting into a, 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 a dangerous situation with a traffic crash. So, so again, the consequences of this type of fear-mongering and these, these claims that officers make generally, again, to support the budgetary, robust budgetary appropriations end up having all of these effects in both the, the lives of officers themselves and, of course, the lives of people who are um, who are being policed, who are the, the object of police interest on, on the streets of our, our towns and our cities. So another lie you talk about, Stuart uh, Schrader, is that in court, and I thought it was interesting uh, that you, you talk about how they sever law from order in the courts, and, and it's called testa-lying. Tell me about testa-lying. Yeah, sure. This is a term that goes back to the 1990s, I believe, um, and, and, it, and it was found to be a, a term coined by police officers. And the idea here is that, that police will uh, you know, bend the truth a little bit um, be somewhat dishonest about how they obtained evidence and so forth in service of a greater purpose, which is to, you know, obtain a conviction of a suspect whom they, they believe to be guilty and whom they believe needs to be, you know, taken off the street, put into jail or prison and so forth. So the idea is that, you know, testifying um, is, is sometimes, of course, there's total fabrication of of evidence but the the way that it it, it was originally understood was was a kind of you know small lie in service of a of a of a you know kind of greater social good that's how police officers justified it themselves but i think it really indicates something more fundamental about police that i try to show in the article which is that um policing we tend to think of in terms of law and order, but in fact, police are not necessarily um, bound by the law in their effort to maintain or create order. In fact, they're willing frequently to bend the law just a little bit um, to to control a, a particular situation. Now, this might end up becoming a, a Fourth Amendment violation. Um, or it might be something much less minor that doesn't rise to kind of the level of, you know, constitutional protection violation. But I think it's it's useful to go into our analysis of what police do on the street with an understanding that that most police will approach situations um, with an ultimate goal of controlling the situation, and law is is treated generally as somewhat, you know, flexible. It's a set of guidelines rather than um, an absolute control on, on, on what they do in the moment. And, and I think it's important to, to recognize that this, this is part of, again, police culture. It's a part of the way that police talk amongst themselves about how to, to do their jobs, um, even if it uh, contradicts what their training says, what the guidebook says about how they're, they're supposed to to do their work. So the, the really close association of law and order, I think, um, can be a little misleading. And test lying is just one of these examples of the ways that police will try to, you know, manipulate or, or circumvent 
some very strict legal controls in the service of order. And of course, again, stepping back, we have to ask, what does order look like in the United States, in, in, in a country that has this very long and deep history of racial inequality, of um, deep economic inequality, and so forth? Of course, order um, is the reproduction of those forms of historical inequality and injustice. Mm-hmm. Wow. Stuart Schrader is a lecturer in sociology at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. So in this article in the New Republic, Stuart, the title is The Lies Cops Tell and the Lies We Tell About Cops. We've talked about a few of the things that cops do. What what are the lies we tell about cops? Well, I think that there's of course a two-way relationship um as as much as police um make claims to uh, protecting our uh, social worlds um we tend to place on police the burden of not just protection but even solving problems that in many ways police might not be well equipped to solve. And I actually think that there's a surprising convergence among many of the activists who have been making arguments about uh, defunding the police or divesting from, um, you know, policing in, in our, in, you know, in our, our municipal budget. Um, there's a convergence between what they're saying and what many police officers will say. And, and that is that police are not necessarily the most uh, well-suited people to deal with certain types of social challenges, mm. homelessness, addiction, um, mental health difficulties, and so forth. Police are not necessarily well-trained in how to deal with these, these issues or situations. Um, they, again, go into many situations not only armed, but inculcated with a sense that, that um, any kind of encounter could you know, turn into violence very quickly when there might not be any reason to suspect that it will. And so what that means is that police, I think, um, in, in, in some cases would be happy to have another agency available on call hmm. to deal with certain types of problems. Instead, in many of our cities across the United States, um, there has been just such deep budgetary fiscal austerity that there are no other people to call except police. When you call 911 because of somebody perhaps um, having a mental health uh, crisis, the only people who are available to respond are police. And they approach that situation as a situation of danger where they might be at risk and other people might be at risk. In fact, uh, a trained mental health professional might not approach that situation through the lens of, of danger or violence and be able to respond in a different way. But of course, there are um, very few, you know, on-call mental health professionals in, in most cities. So I think that when people make the argument to defund the police, they're not simply saying, um, let's, let's cut the budget and, you know, refund taxpayers. They're saying, let's spend that money on alternative uh, institutions, alternative forms of expertise that could deal with the social problems that exist in the United States. And of course, um, 
the, the idea is, is let's figure out how to solve those social problems rather than just put the kind of immediate Band-Aid on them, which is, of course, what police tend to do. Arresting somebody in the middle of a, a mental health episode or arresting somebody um, for, you know, loitering because they're homeless doesn't actually solve the problem of homelessness. It doesn't solve the, you know, more underlying problem. And so people are asking for more thoroughgoing solutions. And I do think, once again, that, that many um, thoughtful police officers would agree that there should be more, um, you know, m- 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 more uh, robust and sophisticated solutions to some of these problems. Police can't provide them. The one caveat I would say is that police, um, I think, would probably say, we don't want our budgets cut. We want the budget of, you know, the other services increased, whereas most activists, I think, are saying, let's cut the budget of police and use that money for other services. Well, I think in the article, and I'm having trouble finding it right in front of me, but you talk about certain areas where they did actually um, um, change the funding for a local police force. I can't find it. Um, so, okay, so one of the, the last line in the article, you talk about uh, uh, this work will require honest and sober assessment of the situation. The first step is rejecting cops' lies. And to me, what you've described so far sounds a lot like that that idea historically that this is sort of a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, for uh, police officers and for police departments. You know, the, the modern policing that we see now has, has changed dramatically over the last couple of decades after the militarization of the police. And then before that, we, we've all heard the stories about how the, the modern police force is based basically on slave patrols and that, uh, you know, these are things that were developed over the last century these ways of policing and that the first thing we need to do is stop accepting them as reasonable and start rejecting those parts of it that we don't like do you think that there will be a or do you think that it is a good idea that we start at the federal level because uh, in the article you point out that every police department is different and there are counties and states and all these other um, influences on how a police uh, department is run do you think it needs to start at the federal level or all the way down to the municipal level? Yeah, this is a, a really challenging question. And, and, and part of the problem, and, and this goes, goes back, um, as you say, you know, decades. Part of the problem is that um, there are challenges for uh, federal level uh, controls to be implemented because most police answer to, you know, the mayor, the city council, and so forth. They don't answer to Congress. However, Congress, of course, does offer funding for police through various um, types of, of grants and, and, and other, um, you know, economic uh, incentives. So I think that, you know, one possibility would, of course, be conditioning some of the fiscal support that comes from Washington that filters down to the states and municipalities, you know, conditioning it on adhering to certain types of standards. A challenge with that is, of course, that, um, you know, Congress, I think, for, for, for decades has believed that it's not really the job of Washington to, you know, sort of dictate what happens with policing at the local level, 
that police at the local level should be accountable to their local polity. I think that what the past um, year plus, if if not longer, of of um, protests, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests starting in 2014, 2015 as well, you know, what they've really shown is that there is such a huge disconnect between the police departments and the the local uh, polities that that they are policing, and so that the idea of police answering to and being accountable to uh, local constituencies, which again underwrite the hesitancy on the part of the DOJ or Congress to you know place controls or conditions on what uh, what enables the, the funding to flow. You know, I, I think we run into a real challenge here because those, that, that disconnect, that lack of accountability, and in fact, the, the way that police unions in particular in cities try to intimidate politicians, try to um, frighten voters through, you know, kind of fear-mongering campaigns, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, I think all of that suggests that, that it's... It, a new pathway needs to be found um, mm-hmm. outside this paradigm of um, local accountability, which is basically non-existent, um, and uh, you know federal reluctance to intervene. Now, of course, the Department of Justice uh, under the Obama administration did intervene in a number of places through consent decrees, um, but even the model of the consent decree is, is relatively limited in terms of its ability to really transform um, police departments. It's a very slow, moderate program of trying to get uh, departments to, you know, recalibrate and reconfigure some of their practices. Mm So I think people, you know, activists are looking for more dramatic and and, uh, radical transformations. Now, whether that can come from Washington, from, you know, a, a set of legislative bodies that are, are stalemated at best, yeah. uh, dysfunctional at worst, I think I think is a real question. Thanks to Stuart for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And, as always, thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.